This is Dickie Newton interviewing one Shelley Cunningham, age 14. The date is Friday, October 3rd, 1984, 4.32 p.m. Okay, Miss Cunningham, start from the beginning. Tell me exactly what happened on the night of October 2nd. Well, I was in my bed reading a Babysitter's Club book, the one where Betsy Sobak breaks Claudia's leg, and I had just gotten to the part where Christy squirts ink all over Marianne's white sweater when I heard a strange noise outside my window. Approximately what time was this? Hmm, let's see. Before that, I was watching an episode of Flurf, which was a rerun, I think, the one where he's kicked out of the Interdimensional Federation of Flurfs for not sharing any of his poop, which came on at 8 o'clock, and then I took a shower after that and couldn't find my jammies, and... Just the facts, Matt. Oh, go on. You were talking about being completely garmentless or something? Yeah, well, I finally found my jammies in the dryer, and by the time I was in bed and reading my book, it was probably around 9 o'clock. And can you describe this noise you heard? It sounded like moaning. Would you say it was like the moaning of one in the midst of intense carnal pleasure? And can you demonstrate it for me? Ew, gross. No, it sounded sad. Okay, so more of a mournful moan. Male or female voice? Male. Deep. All right. What happened after you heard the noise? I got up and looked out my window. What did you see? A ghost. It was across the street from my house. I almost choked on my retainer. Tell me what it looked like. Just like in the picture books. It was all white and kind of glowy with two dark eyes, and it swayed in the wind. I could see through parts of it. What was it doing? Just standing there under the streetlight, facing me, but kind of looking off to the left. Did you mean floating? Well, I guess it could have been floating, I couldn't really see the bottom of it because all of them missed that night. Can you give me an estimate on its size? It was taller than my dad, who has to duck under the basement door frame or else he'll bang his head and shake his fist at heaven. Speaking of heaven, would you like some marshmallow fluff? I happen to have a jar of some in my backpack. It's my favorite food, and I find that in small doses it keeps one's mind sharp. I can't have sweets. Tis a shame. Now, where were we? Uh, You saw the ghost outside your window, and what happened after that? I screamed for my dad and hid under the covers of my bed, but when he ran into the room and looked out the window, the ghost was gone. So he didn't see which way it went? No, he never saw it. He said I'd been watching too many Hollywood movies and told me to go to sleep. Uh, I'm not surprised. Adults are often quick to dismiss the paranormal. It's a coping mechanism, because if they knew what was really going on, they'd go mad. Their brains have too much wear and tear, and they break easily. Kid brains, on the other hand, are strong and pliable. You don't talk like a kid. I assure you I'm 12, although my body is undergoing significant hormonal changes and will soon be that of a man's. Oh... Now, I think that concludes our interview today, Miss Cunningham. If you see the ghost again or have any questions, here's my business card. What are you going to do about the ghost? I'm going to convince it to move on, wherever that may be, too. Spirits sometimes linger in our world due to a sense of deep longing. That is why they moan in the night. And speaking of moving on... I must be on my way if I am to bike all the way out to Eden Estates and examine the spectral scene before dark.
I thank you for your time, Miss Cunningham. You know, you can just call me Shelly. No thanks. I prefer not to get too close to my clients. Familiarity leads to intimacy. And intimacy leads to love. And love clouds perception, just like the mist outside your window. I need a clear view of what's in front of me. Good day, madam. <laughs> Got me with a spot. I left Shelley broken-hearted in the AV storage room at Jupiter Springs Junior High and pedaled my Huffy to Eureka Street on the edge of town. I had a job to do. There's a lot of work in Jupiter Springs, California if you're a paranormal investigator. Sometimes the jobs require a different specialization, such as a laser-powered superhero or 11th level element master, but for this case, a seasoned supernatural detective was called for. I frequently team up with my best friend Plunger, but he was currently attending an academic decathlon in Sacramento, about an hour away. I could have participated too, but I withdrew myself from consideration and protest over the lack of Cape City comic book topics. Plunger's area of expertise is computers and conspiracy theory anyway, so I was on my own this time. The scene of the ghost sighting didn't offer up any clues but I did verify that the street lamp the ghost was under was visible from Shelley's window and that her story was not an obvious fib to get me alone in a room with her. Now I just had to decide where to go from there. Ghosts usually hang around in old houses, but if someone was killed in a car crash, it's possible their spirit became attached to this place. I didn't think so, though. It would have had to have been very recent or else Shelley would have seen the ghost before, and I hadn't heard anything about crashes in the news. Maybe it was headed somewhere. If I were a ghost, where would I want to go? Shirley said it was looking to the left, which is to the east. The gym where all the ladies in spandex dance by the windows is in the opposite direction, and I think that's only on Tuesdays. But I know one place I'd go that's right on the way. Gallows Hill Cemetery. By the time I got there, the sun was setting. Luckily, I told my Aunt Judy that I was spending the night at my friend Chip's house. He's a year older than me and a reformed bully. I'd like to sleep over at Chip's sometime, but he doesn't even own a Nintendo. My aunt wouldn't check up on me because she'd be checked out. Wine makes her sleepy. This wouldn't work with my mom, who is the opposite of her sister, but she was in Rome on business. When in Rome... I don't know what that means because no one ever completes the saying. But when in Jupiter Springs, go to the top of Gallows Hill. You can see the whole city from there. It supposedly got its name after every member of the Connolly gang, 
Notorious outlaws were hanged all at once in a mass execution in the 1800s. They were buried right under where they died, and that was the beginning of a new cemetery, which grew into what it is now. Rows of weathered gravestones, all crooked and green like witches' teeth. I left my bike at the base and scaled the old hill. The wrought iron cemetery gates squeaked like a swarm of rabid bats. It was going to be a long night. I could see downtown in the distance, just as its lights were flashing on. That's where some of my favorite stores are. Comics to the Max and the Starbright Arcade. In the center of downtown stands a statue of Ezekiel Scruggs, the logger baron founder of Lake County. Further off I could see the outline of the hills that my neighborhood is nestled in, Moonstone Hills. On the opposite side I could see the dark tree line of Tolola Pines National Forest. Just last month there was a massive fire in the region and a small portion of the forest was burnt down. It's rumored to be home of all manner of monsters, including Bigfoot and the Owlbear. I know from first-hand experience that at least one creature, a violent visitor from Proxima Centauri, is more than mere rumor. It's reality. Terrible, nightmarish reality. As night fell, instead of watching for wandering spirits, I found myself scanning the black, starry skies above, wondering what was out there watching back. When I was eight years old, my dad left the house to grab a pack of mentholite sucks and never returned. Sometimes I'm told fathers abandon their families, but that only happens to people who live in poor neighborhoods like Sugarbush Valley where Plunger and Chip live. No, I know my dad was abducted by aliens. He had to have been. It's the only thing that makes sense. But I don't think it was by the same species I'd encountered before. They didn't strike me as the beam and ring type. Those guys are from Zeta Reticuli. Midnight came and went, and no ghost made an appearance. The air was cool and quiet, with only the odd hoot from an owl, easily identified. I know my owls. I kept my eyes open for as long as I could by periodically sucking in spoonfuls of marshmallow fluff, but eventually they grew too tired to lift. I didn't remember falling asleep, but I sure as heck remembered waking up at dawn with a back and neck as stiff as the dead man buried under me. Good morning, Mr. Ezra Cornelius Yoder. Now with more sunlight, I did a thorough search of the cemetery. Unfortunately, the only potential clue I found was what appeared to be a small sample of ectoplasmic goo, but it was trapped in some kind of small clear balloon, and my instincts told me to leave it alone. My plan had failed. I'd need to change tactics. After riding home to Moonstone Hills, gobbling down a bowl of Overman O's, and leaving my still snoozing aunt a note, I was out the door again. Soon enough, I was back in Eden Estates, my bulging calf muscles powering the bike down Eureka Street. The trees were showing a tinge of fall colors, and pumpkins perched on porches. If Shelley saw this ghost, maybe other people did too. I needed to find other witnesses. 
An old woman was out doing lawn work, but she only shook her head and smiled when I asked her if she'd seen any ghosts on her street. Her little girl started to cry and ran back inside when questioned. Maybe when Shelly said the ghost was looking to the left, she meant her left, and not the ghost's, which would be west. Past Shelly's house, Jimmy Smedley was playing with lawn darts and saw me whizzing by. Hey Dickie, I got a case for you. Can't, already on a case. But someone stole my Halloween decoration. Call the police. Jimmy Smedley is tin and always has snot oozing from his stubby nose. Last year he tried arguing that the brute could beat up Bug Goodsense. Impossible, they're not even in the same universe. Dwick Stevens would have his back anyway. What a stupid idiot Jimmy is. A few houses down, Georgia Parsons' dad was getting out of his pickup truck in the driveway. You haven't seen any ghosts in the vicinity, have you, sir? No, I ain't seen no ghosts. Are you sure? Maybe Thursday night? I said I ain't seen nothing, kid. Wait a second. Thursday night? Weren't no ghosts, but come to think of it, I did see a buck-naked man come sprinting down the sidewalk Thursday evening. A naked man, sir? Naked as sin. Some kind of pervert, I guess. Thank God my daughter was already off to bed. Uh... What did he look like? Too dark to get a good look at him, but he was big and bald like Uncle Fester. Which way was he running? East. It's weird that you want to know that. Just curious. I gotta go now. Stay away from my daughter. I wasn't sure what to think about a naked man running around at the same time and place as Shelley's ghost. How did it relate? Or was it just one big dangling distraction? The last house on the left, before Eureka Street intersects with Ponderosa Drive, is Mrs. O'Hannigan's. She's one of the lunch ladies at Hammond B. Middle School, where I used to go. We still keep in touch. I knocked, and she came to the front door, still wearing a hairnet. Dickie, what brings you here? Hi, Mrs. O'Hannigan. Just thought I'd stop by to see your beautiful face. Oh, Dickie, you charmer. I always thought you were sweet. That's why I always gave you a little something extra on your tray. You aren't like those other little shits. You want some pudding cups? I still keep some at home just for you. Yes, ma'am. Well, wait just a second and I'll fetch you some. Mrs. O'Hannigan didn't just give out regular pudding cups. They were gourmet, made locally at the Jupiter Springs Pudding Factory where Plunger's grandma works. After a few seconds, the lunch lady delivered the goods. Three cups of Primo pudding, which I stuffed into my backpack. Thanks a lot, Mrs. O'Hannigan. Um, you didn't happen to see a ghost outside the other night, did you? I think I saw that little snot-nosed smedley boy had some kind of ghost decoration on his lawn. Is that what you mean? No, I'm talking about the real deal. Sorry, honey. I don't believe in anything that ain't flesh and blood. I didn't have the nerve to ask her about the naked man. So what are you gonna be for Halloween this year, Dickie? I'm thinking about going as Bigfoot, but I can see you're already wearing your costume. Excuse me? Aren't you dressed as a beautiful princess? Oh, Dickie, the girlies must love you. Such a sweetheart. Not like that no-good, rotten, cheating husband of mine. I do all right. Thanks again for the pudding. See you around, gorgeous. Oh, quit it. And with that, I was back on my bike and coasting down the street again. I hadn't picked up the clues I'd hoped for, and it was starting to look like I might not ever solve the case of the Eureka Street spook. At least I had pudding. Jimmy Smedley was still narrowly avoiding getting his skull pierced by lawn darts, 
when I began to pass him for a second time. Reluctantly, I skidded to a stop. I just want to know one thing, Jimmy. Was the Halloween decoration you had stolen that of a ghost? Yeah, how'd you know? It's called deductive reasoning. Now, what exactly did your ghost look like? It was just an old white bedsheet of mine I cut up and draped over a beach ball and then hung from the tree branch. Are you going to find out who stole it? I mean, I can probably just make another one. I still have the beach ball, but the culprit should be brought to justice. That's what Brendan Bain would do. Brendan Bain is a supervillain. He thumbs his nose at justice and mocks those who stand for it. Oh, well, I bet Heatwave could take him. That's from the Druids of Dragondale RPG, not Cape City. And Heatwave isn't even a person, it's a spell. Yeah, but if it's cast by Flurf... No! Wrong universe again. Look, I'll find the bedsheet bandit. But then you have to admit you don't know what you're talking about. Whatever, that's all kid stuff anyways. I'm mostly into owls now. I can tell you some facts if you want. Ah! I covered my ears before he could say anything else. If I was going to see this case to its conclusion, I'd remain calm. Trust me, bad things happen when Dickie Newton loses his cool. Now that I was pretty sure the ghost Shelley saw was a large man wearing a modified bedsheet, there was another type of clue I could follow. Footprints. When I was on the trail of a spirit, I ignored everything underneath my keds that didn't resemble slime or ethereal vapor. Hunting down a flesh-and-blood man would be much easier, especially for a master tracker such as myself. No footprints were found around the scene of the crime, but the tree from which the ghost decoration hung was so close to the sidewalk that the thief wouldn't have needed to step on the lawn at all to yank it free. I spent the rest of the day searching the ground on either side of the street, finding only sporadic shoe prints that were too small or faded to belong to the suspect. Something wasn't sitting right with me about this case. The ghost might have turned out to be just a man, but there had to be more to it than that. It had to be paranormal somehow. Maybe the man was a robot from the future. Would have been a nice night for a walk, after all. The only way to know for sure was to keep looking for evidence. Soon enough, just as it was getting dark out again, I found the evidence I was looking for. I'd followed Eureka Street east all the way until it intersected the 152 and then went north until I came to the Europa Roadhouse, a rowdy biker hangout. From there I crossed the highway and came to a dirt trail leading into Tolola Pines National Forest. The first thing I saw when I hopped off my bike and squinted down at the ground was a perfect set of shoeless footprints. They were big, just like they should have been. Maybe too big. That's when it hit me like a ton of Lego bricks. That's when old Dickie Newton figured it all out. Those weren't just big feet. Those were Bigfoot's big feet. Now it made sense. The forest fire must have burnt all of Bigfoot's hair off and drove him out of his habitat. He ran naked and discombobulated, ending up on Eureka Street, where he was spotted by Mr. Parsons. Then seeing Jimmy Spedley's bedsheet, he covered his modesty and stood in front of Shelley Cunningham's house, moaning at his misfortune. Eventually, he regained his composure and made his way back into the woods. I knew this case had to be something extraordinary, but extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I needed casts of these prints. Unfortunately, I didn't have any plaster of Paris with me, but what I did have was marshmallow fluff. In the fading light, I grabbed two jars out of my backpack, one for each foot, and packed the prints with the fluff. Come tomorrow, that yummy paste would be as hard as concrete. There would be more footprints to be sure, but I'd done all I could for the day. 
My stomach rumbled and I realized I hadn't eaten anything for lunch. For a second I contemplated slipping up some of the fluff, but then I remembered I had pudding. I'd need the sustenance for the ride home. My Aunt Judy didn't make me go to Sunday school the next day. Seeing as how my time was limited, what with having put off my homework over the weekend and my mom's plane arriving that evening, I decided to make every second count. I was potentially about to be the first person to conclusively prove Bigfoot's existence and make history. While I am certainly well versed on the subject, I admit that I am not the world's foremost expert on Bigfoot in the Northern California region. That honor belongs to local cryptozoologist and bowling alley manager Bart Garfinkel. He had a brief brush with fame after the Gonzo journalist Bing Kingsley wrote an expose on him for Cream Magazine in the 1970s. Supposedly, both men rescued a Bigfoot from the back of a Jupiter Springs brewery truck, assaulted a police officer, and stole a motorcycle from a member of the Night Rangers, MC, before riding off in a blaze of glory. I needed to know exactly what I was dealing with before I went traipsing after the rest of those footprints in the woods. I needed an audience with Mr. Garfinkel. The problem was he almost never gave interviews to anyone. He'd speak to me when he saw those big, beautiful fluff cats, though. But when I went to retrieve them, they were gone. I could have cried. My mind raced. Was I being watched? Was someone trying to stop me from getting too close to the truth? Was it the men in black or the Bigfoot equivalent, the men in plaid? Then I came to my senses and realized my miscalculation. There were a dozen little paw prints around the larger impressions. Raccoons had feasted on the fluff, and now I'd have to meet Mr. Garfinkel empty-footed. I recognized the man behind the counter as soon as I entered the Rolling Thunder bowling alley. The cryptozoologist was almost as big as Bigfoot himself, with short graying hair, glasses as thick as mine, and a Hulk Hogan mustache. I'll take a pair of size 16s, please. Sorry, we don't carry shoe sizes that large, and I know they wouldn't fit you anyway. I've got big feet, if you know what I mean. Uh, yes, you are implying that you have a large penis. Very funny. No, sir. I'm implying that Bigfoot has a large penis. Who are you? Are you another cruel child here to mock me? I don't appreciate comments about Bigfoot's penis. Apologies, Mr. Garfinkel. My name is Dickie Newton. I'm a paranormal detective, and I'm hot on the trail of Bigfoot. Well, I'll have you know the Bigfoot I met is a female and therefore has no penis. Furthermore, if you're another publicity seeker here to exploit Bigfoot for your own fame and fortune, I won't help you. Bigfoot just wants to be left alone, and so do I. Please, sir. It's, it's a matter of life and death. <sighs> it's not safe to talk here. Men in plaid are everywhere. Follow me to my office. We walked down a dim hallway and into a small back room. Bart shut the door and sat behind his desk. I sat in front of it while my brain rushed to think of an excuse to justify my slight exaggeration. And then, out of nowhere, something popped into my head. Mr. Garfinkel, I believe my father was abducted by Bigfoot. Hmm. Well, I did tell you that Bigfoot just wants to be left alone. However... I bet there have been a few credible cases of abduction in the past. So Bigfoot really has taken people? 
Uh, it's extremely rare, and so far all of the abductees were either women or children. Was your father young when you believe he was taken? He was 42. Oh, well, there is one case where a Canadian man denounced society and willingly went to live with a clan of Bigfoots who accepted him as their own. I have often dreamed of doing the very same thing. My dad wouldn't have abandoned my mom and me. He loved us. I know he was abducted. Well, I guess it's possible. In the Cream article, it said you communicated with Bigfoot. I need you to teach me how. Uh, I'm not sure that's a good idea. I don't trust kids. They're mean-spirited tricksters and tyrants. Please, I'm a good boy, I swear. I solve crimes and catch bad guys. Okay, but if you do meet a Bigfoot, you have to swear not to harm it in any way. I swear. I just want to ask it where my dad is. Fine, I can teach you some basic Bigfoot words and phrases. Thank you, sir. I pulled my Fisher-Price cassette player out of my backpack and set it on the desk, hitting record. To my untrained ear, the Bigfoot language consisted of random grunts and snorts, but I had faith in Mr. Garfinkel. He said that for only a case of beer, he learned the language from a Toloa shaman called Grandfather Ghost. I left Rolling Thunder and once again headed out to the woods on my bike. My reasons for wanting to make contact with Bigfoot had started out as just a desire to resolve Shelley's case and confirm the existence of a legendary beast, but now I wondered if maybe, just maybe, the excuse I told Mr. Garfinkel could actually be true. Was I seriously considering the possibility that Bigfoot abducted my dad? It's a possibility that isn't as crazy as it sounds in Jupiter Springs. Back on the trail that eventually led into Tilola Pines National Forest, I began my hunt for more footprints. They were harder to find than I had expected, but they were there. I'd lose my way occasionally, but then find prints again and adjust my course. It was slow going, but I managed to track them until they stopped outside an old abandoned sanatorium. I'd been there before, many a kid had, but never inside. The kids that have been on the inside of Lake County Sanatorium say that on full moons you can still hear the echoing coughs of tuberculosis patients interspersed with the hair-raising howls of mental patients from when it was an insane asylum in the early 1900s. Thankfully, it was only afternoon and shafts of sunlight filtered through the gaps in the boarded windows and cracks in the stone facade. I could have saved a lot of time if I had just come here in search of the ghost instead of the cemetery. There was a narrow gash in the southeastern wall that I could just barely fit through if I slipped off my backpack. Now it was just me and my flashlight, surrounded by graffiti and beer cans. I tiptoed into another large room and saw several rusted metal bed frames and what looked like a few mildewed rags. In the next room, my heart stopped. Back in the corner, a moon-white ghost hovered and heaved in the flashlight's dusty beam. It only took a few seconds, though, for my rational mind to realize I was looking at a bedsheet covering a tall filing cabinet, its end rippling in the autumn breeze. A closer view revealed poorly cut eye holes. It was Jimmy's. Had to be. Leaving the little office room, I stepped out into a big open corridor. This time what I saw gave me an even bigger shock. Among the scattered litter on the floor was a crumpled pack of cigarettes. Menthol light sucks, 
the same brand my dad smokes. Could he really be here? In my excitement, I almost called out his name, but I stopped myself. What if he doesn't remember his name? What if he doesn't remember English at all? Trying my hardest to remember Mr. Garfinkel's lessons, I spoke. Which I hope translated as, My name is Dickie Newton, and I call upon Bigfoot to release my father, Danny Newton, from bondage and surrender him into my custody forthwith. Suddenly, the large silhouette of a figure rose up at the other end of the corridor and stood in the shadows. At the same time, a stench of B.O. ten times worse than Plunger's Pits came wafting aggressively in my direction. I held my flashlight steady, but it couldn't penetrate the concentrated darkness gathering round the hulking figure. Then it stepped into the light. It wore a dirty hospital gown. At first I thought it might have been Mr. Garfinkel, but there was no hair or glasses on its head. Jesus, kid! You scared the living daylights out of me! You having a stroke or something? Uh, you're not Bigfoot. Well, no. I can't say that I am. Name's Larry. Larry O'Hannigan. Wait, as in Mrs. O'Hannigan's husband? Yeah, that's right. You know her? She's a dear friend of mine. You gotta talk to her for me. I can't take any more of this. Please. Why don't you tell me what's going on, sir? Sure, sure. You see, three nights ago, I was making love to my wife and I accidentally shouted out the wrong name. But it's all just a misunderstanding. You gotta tell her that. She locked me out of the house with nothing on, not even my socks. So I ran down the street looking for something to cover myself up with. And I found a Halloween ghost decoration. Yeah, how'd you know? Lucky guess. Go on. I didn't know what to do. I had no proper clothes, no ID, and no money for a motel. Then I remember this place. My friends and I used to dare each other to go inside when I was about your age. I never thought I'd be squatting here as an adult. Some life I'd made for myself, huh? Dumpster diving at the Europa Roadhouse and crying myself to sleep at night. Oh, God. Oh, Jean. <laughs> it was a mistake. I'm not cheating on her. You see, as I was in the throes of ecstasy, I started to say I love you, but I changed my mind and decided to say your name, Jean. What actually came out of my mouth was a combination of the two. Eileen. Jean assumed I'd been thinking about someone named Eileen. Then she accused me of cheating on her. I tried to tell her the truth, but she didn't give me a chance. You know how that temper of hers is. So, will you tell her for me? I could really use a hot shower and some of her home cooking. <sighs> yeah, okay, I guess. Thanks, kid. I owe you one. Say, what's your name, anyway? Dickie Newton. Parrot, uh... Normal detective. Take care, Dickie. Before I left, I retrieved my backpack and slipped Mr. O'Hannigan one of my walkie-talkies through the wall gash. Radios, I should say. These are professional, with a long range and multiple channels. I'd radio him to let him know how it went with the missus. Turns out it went pretty well. Mrs. O'Hannigan listened to me explain the mix-up and seemed to accept her husband's word. She cried a little and gave me some more pudding. Then she rushed off to her car and sped off toward the sanatorium. As for me, I headed home. This case hadn't turned out how I'd expected it to. 
but my thoughts had already started to dwell on domestic matters, such as dinner, homework, and whatever cool Roman souvenir my mom had surely picked out for me. A few weeks later, I biked back to Eureka Street to pick up my other radio from the O'Hannigans. On the way to their house, I rode by Jimmy Smedley's as he was jumping into piles of fiery-colored fall leaves in his front yard. Hey, Dickie, did you find anything out about my Halloween decoration? Nope, see you later. Sometimes it's best not to go chasing after ghosts, lest ye become a ghost too, is what I would have told Jimmy had I felt like stopping. I was moving on. Mr. and Mrs. O'Hannigan were standing on their porch giggling and canoodling when I pulled up. Dickie, we thought that was you riding this way. Hello again, Dickie. Hello, sir. Hello, Gene. Here's your walkie-talkie, and here's something special for all your help. I remembered you said you were thinking about going as Bigfoot for Halloween, so I made you a costume. It's beautiful. I hope you come by on Halloween night and let us see you in it. Trick or treat, Bigfoot's feet, give me some pudding to eat. (laughs) (laughs) I tried on the Bigfoot costume as soon as I was back home in Moonstone Hills. It fit perfectly. As I was reuniting my radios together in my backpack, I realized that I'd left my cassette player going after I'd gotten my language lesson from Mr. Garfinkel. It had been recording from within my backpack as it sat outside the sanatorium. Eventually, the tape had run out and it stopped. For some reason, I had the strange urge to rewind it and play it back. And there I heard the faintest of sounds. I could translate it for you, but the message was just for me. (laughs) 